Welcome to Cycling New South Wales Heritage Commission's podcast, the history of our wonderful sport. If you're going to listen to just one New South Wales cycling story, listen to this one. It's the story of a group of Aussie battlers, underdogs, who with passion and dreams won the greatest prize in world sport, Olympic gold. Australia's win in the LA Olympics came at a time when the bicycle was being transformed due to aerodynamics. The sport was turning into a business and winning gold was becoming a science. It's not just the New South Wales story, with Grenda, Turter, Woods and our boy Kevin Nichols coming from all parts of Australia. Likewise, coach Charlie Walsh, Brian Hayes, who supported the riders in that packed, hot, sunny Los Angeles velodrome. No, this story will look at the work behind the scenes by a group of passionate New South Wales cycling tragics that made the win possible. We're talking years of work to ensure Cycling Australia would not be left behind and simply disappear off the world scene. These are the stories behind that 1984 gold medal, which would change cycling in Australia. They are stories that need to be told, and they should be remembered. For Australia not only challenged the countries that believed cycling was theirs, but the countries that invested massive funds into the sport to buy success. And with good old Aussie passion, not only did they remain competitive, amazingly they won. team manager of course and uh, this is where it all started with the AOS and things uh, in Los Angeles in 84 and uh, that was an interesting time and uh, by winning that gold medal there mate that put us on the map that started it all that really that really did that opened the gate and we took advantage of it and grabbed it That was New South Wales Hall of Famer Ray Godkin who explained the LA Gold was the impetus for the people of Australia to invest in cycling via the AIS program. Before that, not only did Australian cyclists have to convince rival countries they deserved respect, but also the people of Australia. Aussie teams would race international events on a shoestring budget and generally could only afford to represent once or maybe twice a lifetime. So there was no continuity in the Australian team's approach. Or put bluntly, they didn't get to learn from their mistakes. National coach Alex Fulcher realised there had to be some changes. Coaching, you pretty much started off the the way the AIS works. The national coach, you know, when you're over there taking on the Germans. I I formed the Australian Coaching Commission back in 78. I've got the papers I was looking at today. I I started it. When I started coaching, there was nothing. Not not a thing. And I formed the Australian Coaching Commission with Peter Day. But, uh, and I brought back from Ebenen a uh, four-pacing of what's needed to be done with Australian cycling. I've still got it. I'll show it here when I get to here. Yeah. Uh, quite amazing, really, because what I did, what has, has happened, yeah. Sport was becoming a business around the world in the 1970s. The value of sport as a TV spectacle was being realised, plus governments were getting involved, hoping to score political points on rival nations. The East and West Germans rivalry fueled a technology race in cycling. While other cycling-mad European nations quickly picked up on the concepts, Russia's involvement in the new cycling technology of course meant that USA would invest huge money into cycling to give their athletes the edge. Sadly, Australia didn't have those resources, but they did have some very passionate and brilliant people riding and working in the Australian program. 
Here's Kevin Nichols talking of his journey from the first ever Commonwealth Games team's pursuit in 1974 at Christchurch. Three Olympics, wasn't it? And you come yeah. through at a time when um, the whole sport changed. Like, it was the birth of the Arrow era, wasn't it? Yeah, one of my buddy teammates from Christchurch uh, passed away on the ninth. His age ago, Gary Redden from Victoria. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Ray Bowles posted a photo. It was the first ever team pursuit we did in um, Australia in um, Christchurch. It was um, myself, uh, Gary, and uh, Sutter sitting behind Greg Williamson. That was like, we qualified there in like 450 or something. You know, ten and a half years later, with about the Olympic champions now 25 seconds faster. It's an amazing growth, though, isn't it? Like the bikes changed, everything changed. It got scientific. You went right through that era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, well, the bikes are the yeah the, the training, the intensity, and um, I don't know how the hell I did it. <laughs> Um, I don't know why I did it. <laughs> I, 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 I know the benefits, but, but the physical effort, the mental, buddy, you know, ups and downs and everything else you go. Charlie Walsh, too, the intensity of him is... Well, the intensity is crazy, mate. Um, because there was no switch off, you know, like, you know, now it's sort of evolved to the... So they're getting that right balance of recovery and, and effort. Mate, he was, he was acting until the lights went out. <laughs> and, 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 and then, uh, and then as soon as, as soon as, as soon as the sun come up the next day, told to, you know, like, it's like, it was a break, mate, you know. Once I think we were training in Texas Town for the Commonwealth Games and, uh, Mouse Hammond was there and said, Charlie, mate, you gotta let us grow up and just have a, a couple of beers one night, he said, this is ridiculous. <laughs> We've got to have a break somewhere. And he wasn't, and he wasn't doing a teaspoon shoot. It's like the teaspoon shoot you got, it's sort of like you've got an obligation for the others. You know, yeah. if you're having a bad day and you're not, you know, in, in a normal circumstance, you're in an individual event, you say, okay, I, I need to back off a bit today or have a recovery day or something. Like, if, if the squad's got an objective for the day, then you do what the squad's got to do for that day. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter how you feel whatsoever. So Australians were not afraid of working hard, but it was going to take more than that to compete on the world cycling circuit. Riders, officials and administrators would all have to come together to form a plan that could allow Australia to be competitive against the big budget teams. Plus, they would need to be smart enough to react fast in the rapidly changing world of international cycling in the late 70s, early 80s. Here's national team mechanic Jock Bullen. A lot of the people like yourself... Ray Godkin and uh, Alex and a lot of those people yeah. that are all involved in managing teams were all very good doing a bit of tinkering and stuff like that. Oh, right? sure. They were great people and, again, they were all on the one page, you know. We were all trying to make things better. So Australia had smart people who were prepared to work hard, but no money to run the games campaign was still a problem. Few people would stop and think how important Alex Fulcher's son, Alan, stepping into the family business was for Australian cycling. 
It allowed Alex time to coach and develop his national program. And secondly, the success of Alan in the business allowed Alex to finance his development plans in the lead up to LA. Here's Alex Fulcher's son, Mark, talking of those early days. Look, mate, we had bike riders in there of our house. You know, that's sort of my memories of, of, of my younger years too, just bike riders in and out of the house all the time, you know. Um, you were always going to be a cyclist. I was always the one going to do it, and then probably Rick a bit the same. And with Alan, well, Alan, Alan was keen, but it's funny, the, the story I remember is when Alan was young, he said, I want to be a race car driver, like we all have dreams, you know, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and Dad being Dad used that to sort of get him involved in bikes and say, well, listen, you've got to pick up skills and learn, you know, all that sort of stuff and coordination and that, so cycling's a good way to do that, you know, so, um, but yeah, look, we were, we were always going to involve it, definitely. His coaching took off as far as representative at the Com Games, and that was Edmonton. Alan had actually come into the business the year before. Yeah, yeah. Alan being involved in the business really did allow him to to go Com Games and uh, Olympics, to be quite honest, because he did. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we're talking the 80s, and that's when it all happened, isn't it? Like, yeah, suddenly, yeah. he was getting bikes built. Let me get my ears right now. He come back from... Because after Com Games, he obviously went to Worlds in Amsterdam in 79, I think it was, and then he did a few Worlds, and he bought one of the... Well, as far as I remember, anyway, and, and one of the first sort of designs back from what these Germans were riding yeah. and then uh, with Bob Hines and, and uh, another guy Matt there was an engineer that Bob Hines knew and then of course then Jeff got involved and we started um, I suppose the rest is history the, all the other ones yeah well built, I've stuff, got yeah. The, this this bike too and the one that Jeff actually built and it's a, a crazy looking thing you would have been riding on some of those bikes I'd imagine no definitely yeah 100% I was so I, I rocked up to the uh, states with this bike um, that was my first. I got a bronze there with Hosea. Raced Hosea off of third and fourth place. I think Ocker, Ocker, and uh, I think Sutter might have been pro. So it would have been Ocker and someone else might have even been Mick John were in the final. And then me and Hosea raced off for the bronze two years in a row. And I was riding that particular bike the first time it sort of presented itself, you know, in that in that uh, yeah. in those races, a state title there around the Hertz Global. Hard work and money is one thing, but Australia's rivals had employed scientists with years of study and investigations behind them to work with their teams to develop their new aero bikes. For example, the Americans had bought Dr. Chester Kyle, PhD, an adjunct professor of mechanical engineering, into their cycling program. He was recognised as a pioneer in human-powered vehicle aerodynamics, while the East Germans were even further ahead of the curve. So the next step in the Australian story is almost like something out of a James Bond movie. Here's Alex Fulcher again. Jeff's go time trial bike, which is a great story. Uh, I went with Gary Sutton. We went to the World Track and Road Tiles in England, and the uh, the road tiles were down in Goodwood, down the south of uh, at the airport, down the south of um, the car racing circuit down the south of England, and the uh, East Germans love with these, uh, what we call them, funny bikes those days. We've never seen them before, and they had them all locked into a compound, and uh, and I went back in my night time with a camera and took photos of about, 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 about 100 photos of all these bikes from every angle I could get. So were you allowed to? Or? No, 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 no. Oh, really? No. And so I, I came back home and we developed all the photos, and I sat down with Jeff Scott, and we mucked around for about a year with different designs, and where to braise the handlebars onto the head stem of the, of the, of the, of the foot top of the fork crown and, uh, and then we went for the, the, the teardrop tubing and we would do a lot of things and uh, anyhow um, I was pretty keen I had my own team then so I built five of them I think 
for our team's time trial team and we were the first ones to have all the same bikes and all that sort of thing and, uh, and that was certainly an innovation in Australia I had the first one Jeff and I had the first ones in Australia and then we went on the track bikes we did the same thing with the track bikes so we had the first funny bike for want a better word uh, aero track bikes in Australia too so Jeff and I put a lot into it over the over about a two or three year period with, with study and and uh, we made a few changes and Jeff was very good uh, we found but the thing we did found was that we made them too weak in the centre brackets so we had to reinforce all the centre brackets they had too much give in them and, but uh, I, I'd, I'd say we were the stepping stone for bikes out of the ordinary So with a head full of ideas, secret agent Alex headed back to see his mate in Camden, the legendary Jeff Scott. Now while the East Germans were building their bikes at universities and wind tunnels, and the Americans had set up in the Huffy Corporation's special project division in Daytona, Alex and Jeff got to work in his garage. But don't be fooled, Jeff is a master frame builder. Here's fellow frame builder John Kitchen talking about Jeff Scott. rough frame builder and you get rough bits you go back and you heat the frame up again and every time you heat that frame you take carbon out of the frame which takes strength out of the frame so the colder the frame is brazed or silver solid the stronger the frame is the better frame You're right and it's old-fashioned craftsmanship it's yeah, yeah. all it is yeah yeah that's a great um thing to have as a frame builder he's as good as any in the world yes so Alex Fulcher may have just got his mates back in Sydney to bring his ideas to life, but he had assembled a world-class team. Master frame builder Jeff Scott takes up the story. There was no team bikes. You, you, if you got picked in, like in the late 70s, picked for an Australian team, you didn't get a bike, you rode your own bike. So you had three different or four different different bikes. Yeah. Until Alex was the one. I think I made the first team bikes... I think I made them 1980, 81 for the Australian road team. Yeah. And that's Alex. Alex paid for you know, where I couldn't afford to to buy the supply the whole lot for nothing. Alex had threw the money. Heinz would make the wheels. They'd put them together at Heinz's shop at the back of Fairfield Heights. I think I remember that place. And Ray Godkin used to call in every now and again because he, he was driven around because he was high up in the police force. Yeah, yeah. And that's how we used to have to do it. But without Alex, there was no such thing as team bikes. You rode your own bike. Then Melbourne Star started throwing some money, and Johnny was involved in that Melbourne Star because he he knew the bloke that owned Melbourne Star pretty good. And then that's how now they get they you know, anything they don't buy is their underpants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it is it's such a business now. But yeah. we're talking about the development that that whole business grew out of a. Uh, just a group of blokes that love bikes and they yeah. just got in and, and they problem solved to well, work out put it this way without Alex it would never ever happened yeah N- and never happened but then we come back from East Germany and he said look I've got the idea I've seen this yeah. what are we going to do and then I said well first we'll see Heinz's first bike the first one ever made in 79 we had a 24 inch front wheel we had, Alex had the idea over four riders to get the train as short as we could. Yep. Okay, so I could make the frame as short as you want. But the biggest problem, we couldn't get singles. You couldn't get a 24-inch single or a 26-inch single. Yeah. 
so they had to have 700c wheels and that's why the development started i'd make one yeah we'd go and get kenrick or someone or, or mark yeah. to ride it yeah i'd stay lay on the track and watch how it went into the corners and see if it skipped up or skipped yeah. down and then come back and modify it we do it until we come up with the design we were happy with yeah okay then we had, we had problems with the starting we come off the center of the forks when they start they'll snapping them off so I'll come up with an idea I'll show you that's on yeah. I've got one of the original 82 Commonwealth Games bikes here yeah. and how I stopped that yeah. from breaking yeah. but that was didn't happen overnight it might have took it taken a month to come up with that idea yeah. and that was all done nothing then Melbourne Star supplied the clothes yeah. so the bikes had to be painted Melbourne Star blue with Melbourne Star stickers on yeah, I right. couldn't even put my own name on my own bikes how about that yeah. So there's, there's suddenly where the business has started. All of yeah. a sudden, up until then, it's been a group of blokes working and then yeah. suddenly the business has already taken off. So I guess LA Olympics, bikes were the same nearly for 100 years yeah. and then that's the changing yeah, point and you were in right world. in the middle of that. Well, I, got a, I, got a, I got one of the Swiss funny bikes. Yeah. Okay. When at LA, the Swiss complained about our bikes. They were illegal. And Ray Gogg will tell you the story. But Ray didn't know that I had one of the Swiss bikes where I measured and got their measurements off, right? So when the Swiss complained about our bikes, we complained about the Swiss bikes. So that at the LA Olympics, everyone, the, all the rules were squashed. They let the Olympics run. Then after that, they come up with set rules, set yeah. measurements. Before that, we had no measurements, yeah. not, not written down. And you've got that bike? I got that bike, yeah. Oh, how important is that to... Yeah. For LA Olympics, like, yeah. so you've got Alex sneaking in and breaking into a, a container to take photos yeah. of bikes, and then you getting hold of a Swiss bike to yeah. th to make the whole thing work, to get the yeah. whole thing. Later, I walked around Jeff's bike collection. The history tied up in those bikes is breathtaking. That Swiss funny bike stands prominently among the Aussie Olympic bikes for the part it played in the LA Olympic gold. Standing all together, those bikes show the chaos of the times, as the cycling world battled to get its head round the new aero technology. For those not old enough to remember watching the cycling at the 84 Olympics, it was like tuning into another planet. It's worth YouTubing USA Rory O'Reilly's ride in the 1984 Olympic Kilo final. How about the bike, the wheels, the handlebars, the struts? Strangely, the commentary was mostly concerned with the unusually large gear he pushed. Modern day thinking would suggest he was quite conservative. Plus, I'm sure today's cyclists would be shocked at Rory's support crew's team clothing. Clearly, it was way before the sun protection message. Sadly, Rory had all the technology and science, but went out way too hard. Anyway, back to Jeff Scott. But the LA Olympics and the Commonwealth Games. It must have been amazing to watch your products going around. The Commonwealth Games in '82 were the wonders yeah. because it, we got a lot of shit thrown at us about the bikes and uh, there was a bit of po political bullshit going yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was the biggest kick. Then after they'd done that, there was the world titles and a few other things that they won before they got to LA. Yeah. And. Uh, it was a buzz, Australian yeah. winning. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I got a man. Me and Bobby Hines got uh, Meryl Key to Fairfield and 
got special um, mayoral reception and Alex put a big thing on in the city for us. Yeah. And where did you watch it? I was here. Sitting in here, just yeah. sitting on the... Yeah, sitting here watching the telly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, must, you still must have been nervous. early 1980s, Australia was having great success in world sport and was celebrating with a confident larrikin ochre image going as high as the Prime Minister of Australia, Bob Hawke. The Camden Wind Tunnel is a classic piece of Australian bravado, and Jeff Scott is as Aussie as you can get, including his First Nation people's heritage. I hope this story can identify the Camden Wind Tunnel as a piece of Olympic Games memorabilia that best describes Australia in the 70s and early 80s. A quick warning, there is some swearing in this grab, but I do want to paint a picture, as this is a time when even the Prime Minister of Australia was calling people bumps. There's just so much going on at the yeah. LA Olympics. Yeah. Especially when the Yanks pulled their foot, you know. Yeah. Because well, the Yanks spent $5 million on each bike. Our bikes cost nothing. I had to scam them up and and we scrounged to get this and scrounged to get that. All Melbourne Star did was buy their clothing for the Australian team. There was no money. They yeah. were scratching. Yeah, there was yeah. pub raffles. Tank, you'll tell you that too. Pub raffles to get them there and everything. There was no fucking money at all. Yeah, yeah. Like all that money in, in yeah. those bikes. Yeah. They had NASA working on them and, yeah. and well, here you they, are sitting in the shed. Here, I had an interview done on me, right? And they said, where's our wind tunnel? I said, see the road out there? I lay in the middle of the road down there and watch them ride down the hill. Then the council come put a new hot, hot milk fucking road down. <laughs> I'm not joking. That's what they did. Did they, they do that for you or they just... Yeah, well, it, it was a pretty big thing around Camden here yeah, too, yeah. you know, that they yeah. built here and and, then, and that's when they come and done the interview and they said, where's your wind tunnel? Well, Americans use wind tunnels everywhere. And my argument with that is, I said, you can you build a real nice aero bike and put a gorilla on top of the fucking tent. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, I used to lay out in the road and watch them ride down the hill. I got them, yeah, to see if, how flexy it was or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, That's all you need. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's all that development no one knows about, only yeah. Alex. Yeah, As you go yeah. back, because yeah. you interviewed Alex. Yeah. We'll tell you what we went through. Yeah. So, and so we never, we kept them all quite nuts. Before Brisbane 82, no one knew the bikes existed. Yeah, right. No one knew. I got Frankie Atkins to paint them. Oh, yeah. Frankie was a pro. Yeah. Ex-fighter. He rode yeah. for San Giacomo. And uh, we painted them at Skoda Fiola, the Ferrari dealers. Uh-huh. We had to snip, slip the bikes in there with no one known. They were painted. Now, Heinze and Alex put them together with no one known about them. No one knew those bikes existed before the Commonwealth Games. And you were just rolling down the road out the footpath here just to make sure everything worked and you'd come back in, do a bit more tinkering. Yeah, that's how the development part of it was. And then back in here and all top secret. No one knew a thing about it. No one knew. No one knew. Until Alex had to measure them to get the handlebar position. Yes. Right. And they knew something was going down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because where I've come off off the crowns. Yeah. Well, we had to have the measurement off their bikes to get it in the position. Yeah. And you can tilt the handlebars a little bit, yeah. but that's all you can do on it. Do you at the Commonwealth Games? No. There's so a picture of Sato at the gate with Tony and David Cook yeah. on that big picture up there. Yeah. Wow. I was never invited. And I was on I was on the black shirt by tank, you know. We don't want you <laughs> hanging around. <laughs> okay. 
But it's crazy to like if anything went wrong. Like you had to make sure that everything was perfect with those bikes. Whereas yeah. they they had scientists out working on those American bikes yeah. right up until they were off the start line. Well, you know, like what, I can't dig a hole and bury myself with the fucking thing fell in half. <laughs> Now, while the cycling team was building some new generation high-tech funny bikes the Aussie way, the cyclists themselves were in a battle to see if they could even get to the Olympics. Here's team member Kevin Nichols. I started paying for a house and everything, so I didn't find out until three days before the national championships or selections for the LA Olympics that work was going to pay me to um, go away for 10 weeks. Oh, wow. I didn't know I was going until... Yeah, the, the, the almost the night before the racing started to pick the team. Wow. Um, yeah. And Ray Gokin has spoken to um, about November the year before and said, yeah, I really want you to, to come back and boost the, the numbers up or whatever. Mm. And we think we need you there because the team had got fourth the year before. I said, look, man, that's just too silly. And, and then he said, no, 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 I need... I talked to him because he used to go training with me and asking all these questions. I kept telling him stuff, you know, about what had gone wrong and what I thought should happen and everything else. And a little bit later, him and Charlie had gone away and um, put the plan together to, to not that I'll try to get kudos for, for, the, for what happened, but took my experiences on board and said, okay, if we're going to make this happen, then, you know, the focus is on the team and the, and the whole travel plan and, you know, we had to have the idea was with the last time is it had to be like survival of the fittest and take, you needed more tennis machines there than you needed at the end and then you just, just train that hard because some people are going to, are not going to uh, uh, make it through and the ones that do that come through the best then you've got the best team there rather than going with four guys and saying well, you know, without the competition to make the team to start off with and then if something goes wrong as it did in Moscow, uh, you're not quite sure. Once in the team, Kevin knew from previous representation that he'd have to double his training. And surprisingly, he explains here, it wasn't for the actual LA Olympics. Did the selection races, and got selected, and like, I'd been doing maintenance miles all summer, and 400 k a week. And uh, the next day I went out, I was doing 800, 800, 800, 800 for about eight weeks before I got into the training camp because I knew what the training camp was still a bit like. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't really need this to race in LA, but um, I need it to survive the training camp. And then you get the mice out, you know? Uh, and that was, that was working at the same time. Right? Yeah. Go to work, you know, right home, quick shower, run up a road to the gym, back home, eat, half hour, Pack your bag, ready to go, into bed, out of bed, 15 minutes, yeah, show you the toilet, dress, on the bike, go again, the same thing, over, 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 over. <laughs> that was just to get there. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> the, the training we did, it's like, we jump on that track every second day, we did 10 by uh, 2,000 metres, There'd be five of us and you know, one guy would rotate out each round. We're sitting on 60k an hour going around that track. 
my inventory and can't really talk about it much later on. Every time I get there, I go up, roll around the top and drop in. I'll be saying to myself, I said, get up, get up there. You know, like you were, you were just so exhausted. Yeah, yeah. And you just bang, you hit the button, you'd be down there, you'd be doing it, you know, one more, one more, one more thing. I don't know whether my legs can get up there one more time. The amount of intensity you've put into that for that many years, it's unbelievable. So the training and conditioning for the riders in the lead-up to the LA Olympics was unprecedented. Plus, we talked earlier of the use of brand new technology. Of course, this mix of fatigue and brand new ideas created an environment for mistakes. This is where the Aussies excelled. As Alex Fulcher explained earlier, the Australians embarked on a more systematic approach to racing at the Games. In fact, at the Commonwealth Games, brilliant manager Ray Godkin and Charlie Walsh called a meeting to prepare for the Olympics, where they brought in people like Jock Bullen to work on an approach to cut the risk of any mistakes at the Olympics. Every, every time, every week there was something happening and the, the funny bikes were born and, you know, all, all this sort of thing and then the UCI changed the rules halfway through. But, um, I, yeah, yeah, you, you... didn't I, feel I never, the pressure, did you, by the sounds of things? You didn't, you just took, didn't no, do the just, job? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm a mechanic, so... <laughs> you just keep going and... Well, it, it sounds to me like you really could work out where your role started and stopped as well, from what I can gather, and that yeah. would be the trick to being able to get to sleep at night, <laughs> I think. <Yeah. laughs> you, 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 if you understand the scope of your job, you yeah. go, you're going to be able to do that job with a lot more confidence, aren't you? Yeah, well, that's, that's the way I see it. There was a lot of things done then that you don't get or much of now, like sticking your tyres on and stuff like that. Um, jobs that do matter, you know, they, they were always my main ones that I, I looked at, you know, uh, so that no one's going to get hurt. Besides the track, by the way, you know, I, I used to do the road too, and uh, both Shane Bannon and myself, we would live in Italy there for two or three months uh, with the road riders during the tour seasons, you know, tour of Italy and stuff like this. So you, you, you just got a, an idea of, well, that, that was my job. You just either come up with an idea and I'd run it past Sal or Hazy, you know, and say, mate, what do you think of this? You know, because you see, see them bringing things to the front and you think, yeah, geez, that's not a bad idea. You know, and uh, and we kept up with uh, the system, you know. Now, while Australia was pulling together an excellent development program in the run-up to the 1984 Olympics, there was still problems. One of the biggest was disc wheels. Australia just didn't have them. Those wheels, those discs, head looked amazing on that wheel. Yeah, the tanks had the discs too, though. Apparently we got offered this wheel uh, earlier in the year. Uh, someone tried to sell them to us and uh, I said, no, 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 we don't need those. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, anyway. 
So the Australians had brand new bikes, helmets, latex suits, but they didn't have disc wheels. And the American Steve Heggs aero bike with disc was all the talk at the velodrome. In fact, away from the velodrome, at the LA road cycling, the advantage of the disc wheels was also on display. In the Olympic team's time trial on the road, USA's team captain Davis Finney could not be convinced to use the disc wheels and opted for the whole team to use a conventional spoke wheel setup. The Italians looked sensational on their double disc wheel setup and won by minutes. Given Ray Godkin's eye for detail, you could imagine his concern about this in the run-up to the Olympics. That's when the disc wheels appeared in LA, and we didn't have any, of course, but the Yanks had them, and I'd, uh, I was beating Australian cycling uh, because I didn't become the president until 85, uh, but I was uh, asking for some money to buy some disc wheels, uh, 500 bucks each, and yep. the Yanks had some, mm. and they said, right up, we've got four for you if you can get the money. So... Uh, then I virtually begged uh, the Australian cycling for two two grand to buy the wheels. Eventually they come good. You say, right out, you, you have it. So uh, then armed with the money, I then went to the supplier who was going to give them, and they said, Ray, there's some bad news. I'm not allowed to sell them to you. <laughs> and they, they couldn't get them. So we, we went without them, didn't have them. But uh, Patrick Sir Q lent one to Dean Woods when he rode off for the bronze medal. Wow. So he had one. Patrick Sergu come and give, give, give us one for him to ride. That's the only one we had. So many things happened in that LA Olympics team pursuit competition. USA totally messed up an early round where they pulled a wheel, had a fall and somehow got a restart. The Germans seemed to monumentally choke in their semis and the Aussies' brilliant skills on the tricky outdoor velodrome. We'll cover it in another podcast, but for the moment, let's skip straight through to the Olympic final. Australia versus the USA in a battle for Olympic gold when cycling was going through the biggest changes since the penny farthing era. Remember, it was only a matter of months after Australia had achieved the impossible, defeating America in the America's Cup with a yacht that sailed on wings. So USA was not leaving anything to chance. They had a cunning plan to put Australia out right from the start. On the start line for the gold medal final, you guys are lining up on the track and the Americans are just... I couldn't believe it. They're actually underneath the bikes on the start line. You are just standing there waiting to go. It's just crazy. I don't know what they're doing, but as soon as they show they're doing, they don't have around much of their own foolishness because they've got a state of awareness at the start and you need to get in and you need to zone in and peak and when the gun goes, you need to hit that button with full focus, you know? You know, if, you, if you're ready too early and then you start on the downer and you take off, you lose half a second the first five metres. Um, because you, you just, you're just not at your peak awareness when you when you go. I just took it as that's what they were doing. Uh, and I spoke to Charlie and Ray, and what we did is watch the other side, even though we were ready earlier. We're sitting there, and we've got a running commentary of when their uh, flag was going up so that we weren't piped up too early, so we were relaxed. And as soon as their flag went up, we said, okay, this is it, and you knew you know, 30 seconds later, whatever the gun was going to go. And you start giving yourself up mentally to go. 
but it was, it was sort of negated with what they had done. Yeah. Australia's start was brilliant, while the Americans was messy at best, with one of the riders pulling a foot. But Kevin Nichols explains to start thinking the gold was theirs was naive. The velodrome was packed to capacity with cheering Americans, and Steve Hegg was the weapon that would be deployed if they could even get the slightest snip of gold. Did you actually plan for them to do the slow start so you could get your mentally on your game for your start? It's very clever what you've done there. Um. That's sort of a pattern that you know, our race was Sato all those early years, and um, Sato was always our starter, and part of their game back then was jumping the start, you know, like we were almost full starting every time we raced. <laughs> we were that quick off the <laughs> 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 So we were gaming it the other way. So we'd always been thinking about it. We'd always, it wasn't just a case of, of a drag race, it was like we thought it through and we knew. You know how the how the other team's thinking. You know how you should be thinking. You know uh, you can read your, you read your teammates. You can you can read the opposition. Like all we had to do with the Americans, really, um, we figured was stay in front. Like if we if we let them get in front of us at any stage, then we thought it might be a problem already right anyway because because of the crowd support. Like if if they had to just really put the hammer down and. and the others managed to hang on. We're in trouble. Kevin Nichols would lead the team across the line to win the 84 Olympic Teams Pursuit Gold Medal, which would lock cycling into Australia's future Olympic priority programs at the AIS. Years of investment and planning, years of training and racing, years of management and risk analysis had paid off in gold. Now, while Grenda, Woods and Turter started yelling and celebrating, Kevin looked a little bit more reserved. Who just chucked the helmet up into the crowd? But I, I don't know. Would you've ever got those helmets back? Or Ray was running through the crowd getting them. He, he was pissed <laughs> off because he needed them for the junior world championships not long after. Um, so he went, he went, he went. He had to scurry up the crowd to get them. And uh, yeah, it was. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was a bit the same before. I was like, come on, guys, in Brisbane. Um, I think Mouse Hammer got second. He was like more excited than I was, but I think I was just in a state of shock that I pulled it up. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it, as I said, to me, it's one of the greatest stories in cycling in Australia, you know, because it, the whole sport changed. You were on these brand new bikes. Looking back at the win, I asked Kevin generally about the journey to the LA Olympics and a point in time where Australia seemed to have a huge reputation in world sport, which was built around Aussie athletes' passion for sport and a passion for pulling on the green and gold. Well, all the guys I ran with, like, it's ten and a half years between that first Commonwealth Games and the Olympic Games. I can't think of one guy that I, I raced in a national team with that couldn't have been there with us if they could have withstood what you had to go through to, to deliver on that day. With all of the capability, it was just putting yourself through the, you know, through what you need to get there and do it. We always, we always had talent, but the talent was way underdeveloped. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at that photo, like I said, two days ago. The team pursued in, in Christchurch, and I can still remember how much, how nervous it was and how much that hurt. Mm. In 
riding 450, I can tell you, hurt a lot more than riding 420. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a whole Because point. we hadn't trained for it, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. So as I stated at the start of this podcast, the LA Olympics is not just a New South Wales story but we need to remember all the local people that played a major role in a win that brought Australian cycling into its modern era. There are so many others I didn't have time to mention in this podcast, so maybe I'll just let Gary Sutton have the final word in this story, as he was mentioned by most of the people I interviewed. I look, New South Wales, there's a lot of good people doing a lot of work, and I think New South Wales will always produce good athletes in our sport. Um... You know, I think uh, it's just part of our tradition, isn't it? You've been listening to Cycling New South Wales Heritage Commission's podcast. Thanks to Dried Arrangement for the music in this story. This is Heritage Commission Chairman Mark Windsor saying thanks for listening. Hours,